Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. He stopped, because something was coming. He could feel it, almost taste it on the night air. He could taste it. A sooty, hot taste that came from everywhere, as if God was planning a cookout and all of civilization was going to be the barbecue. Already the charcoal was hot, white and flaky outside, as red as demon's eyes inside. A huge thing. A great thing. His time of transfiguration was at hand. He was going to be born for the second time. He was going to be squeezed out of the laboring cunt of some great sand-colored beast that even now lay in the throes of its contractions, its legs moving slowly as the birth blood gushed, its sun-hot eyes glaring into the emptiness. He had been born when times changed, and the times were going to change again. It was in the wind, in the wind of this soft Idaho evening. It was almost time to be reborn. He knew. Why else could he suddenly do magic? Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. I'm Arnie, continuing to review Stephen King's epic 1978 novel, The Stand. For those of you just joining us, this is part three of my series of reviews on this novel, and I'll just tell you this podcast does not stand alone. I'm going to proceed assuming you've heard the two previous shows. In part one, I discussed King's inspiration for The Stand and explained that King broke this novel into three books. In part two, I went through some of the plot, Focusing on book one where American society begins to crumble as over 99% of the population dies of a man-made super flu known as Captain Trips. During that discussion of the flu, I talked about many of the characters that fight for good in this novel. Yet during those chapters in book one, King also introduces us to some survivors who will end up joining the causes of evil. Far less time is spent with these characters than the good ones, both in this setup and throughout the entire novel but yet some of King's most memorable characters ever originate here. The first bad guy we meet is another top five favorite character for me, Lloyd Henry. Lloyd is an ex-convict, previously convicted of attempted rape of a Reno showgirl. In the clink, he met Andrew Polk Freeman, in for assault. But when we first meet Lloyd, he and Polk are on the run after a multi-state murder spree after stealing 16 pounds of marijuana and some guns from the mafia. Lloyd isn't too smart, but he's a fun kind of dumb criminal. The type of guy who doesn't even realize how bad he is. In the early chapters, I didn't much care for Lloyd, mostly because of his sidekick, Poke. Poke is one of those King characters that just kind of annoys me. Every so often, King will write a character a little too broad, one I can't even envision as being a real person. I just would pity any actor having to do this on screen. And one of those is certainly Poke, constantly crying out, whoop, whoop and saying he's going to pokerize people, as in shoot them, Poke is loud and obnoxious, and when they're introduced, Poke seems like the focus character. He's the brains behind their murder and theft. But fortunately, Poke is pokerized pretty quickly, and we're left with Lloyd, arrested and in jail awaiting charges of murder. It's in prison that Lloyd is left when the plague hits. Both inmates and guards die, and Lloyd begins to starve to death in his cell. He bludgeons a rat for food and tries to meter out the water in his toilet, but he's slowly dying, trapped in prison. He even starts to look at the dead man in the next cell as a possible source of food. So of all the characters who survive the plague in this novel, Lloyd's fight is the hardest. It's a too realistic thought of starving to death or dehydrating while trapped. 
Despite introducing us to Lloyd as an attempted rapist and murderer, the torment he suffers in that cell makes him sympathetic to me. Less sympathetic, albeit only slightly, is Donald Merwin Elbert, otherwise known as the Trash Can Man, a nickname he earned after repeatedly setting fires in wastebaskets. Unlike Lloyd and the other characters I've mentioned thus far, we first meet the Trash Can Man after the apocalypse, when Trash is the last survivor in his small Indiana town. But like Lloyd, Trash Can Man has spent his share of time in prison. But Trash wasn't there for murder or rape. Killing and sex seem to have no appeal to this man. Donald Elbert is categorically insane and a complete pyromaniac. Through Trash Can Man's own rememberings, we see that since childhood he has set fires, and though he tried to resist, there would just be times he'd find himself setting fire to mail in a mailbox, or to a church. As a child, he was institutionalized and underwent multiple shock therapies, and as an adult, he tried to integrate with society, taking a job at the Scrub-A-Dub-A car wash, yet the call of the fire always remained, and he always ended up burning something. Now that everyone is dead, Trash Can Man doesn't mourn. He doesn't worry about getting food or getting sick himself. He simply sees an opportunity to set fires. His first act after society breaks down is to run to the giant oil tanks outside his house and fulfill his dream of setting them ablaze, seeing how they'd explode. Now, Trash Can Man is, again, the type of King character I normally dislike. Like Poke, Trash has some nonsense phrases he often repeats, like, Bumpity Bumpity Bump! And he's such a firebug that he seems completely devoid of any true humanity. He feels like a fictional character. Yet, he's conflicted, tormented, and insane. And perhaps for those reasons, I find a little sympathy in my heart for this obviously dangerous man. From the early pages, it's easy to see that Lloyd and the Trash Can Man will eventually end up as an obstacle to our more heroic characters of Stu, Fran, Larry, and Nick. Both Lloyd and the Trash Can Man do suffer from less screen time than the good guys. King is setting them up as counterparts, but in truth, the stand is going to focus mostly on the hero's fight to survive. But with these six characters, what we have is a very human story. With only the elements discussed so far, this would not only not be a horror story, it wouldn't even classify as fantasy. It would be general fiction, perhaps with a sci-fi or action bent. But this is a Stephen King story. And so, like we had with the three previous novels published under the author's own name, there's going to be a supernatural bent. Now again, I state, this story didn't need to go magical. The flu and the downfall of American society would have been plenty. But that King pushed it further and started to include the supernatural is what makes the stand entirely unique in the genre of superflu stories. That normal world King began in Arnett, Texas is about to be transformed into a world of magic and miracles. And of all these elements, none is more powerful than the character of Randall Flagg, the dark man King envisioned while still trying to write about Donald DeFreeze. King envisioned Flagg as the epitome of evil. The author said, quote, Randall Flagg to me is everything that I know of in the last 20 years is really bad, or maybe even since Hitler. It's mostly Charlie Starkweather, who I was afraid of when I was a kid. I heard the stories about Charlie Starkweather and his killing spree, and I was really terrified to what he was doing. He's partially Charles Manson, at least partially Charles Littman, the Texas Tower killer, and Richard Speck, and all those people. End quote. Additionally, the novel even goes so far as to say Flagg went to high school in Nebraska with, quote, a red-haired, bandy-legged boy named Charles Starkweather. End quote. Flagg is the primary antagonist of The Stand, and perhaps the single most important character King has ever written. With The Stand, we have Flagg's first appearance, but as I mentioned, his roots were really in that 1969 poem. 
The Dark Man lived in King's head for nearly a decade before The Stand was released, but Flagg's story would go on to other King novels, such as The Eyes of the Dragon, Hearts in Atlantis, and many of the books in King's Dark Tower series. We'll get to those appearances in due time, but it was here in The Stand that King's constant readers are first introduced to this nemesis. King writes him as being a man with no face, going back to that FBI image of Donald DeFries. Yes, at times Flagg's face is hidden and people can only see his eyes in darkness. In a later interview, King clarified what he meant though, quote, in many ways, that means he looks like anybody, end quote. In the 80s, he said he'd love to see Robert Duvall play the part. In the intro to the 1990 version, he also mentioned David Carradine for the role, stating, he's gaunt and demented enough, end quote. King's introduction to this character in chapter 23 of the extended version, 17 of the original, is captivating. It's reminiscent of King's Dark Man poem and the way King writes about Flag almost as a force of nature. King writes, quote, He moved on south, somewhere on US 51 between Grasmere and Riddle, now closer to Nevada. Soon he would camp and sleep the day away, waking up as evening drew on. He would read as his supper cooked over a small, smokeless campfire. It didn't matter what, words from some battered and coverless paperback porno novel, or maybe Mein Kampf, or an R. Crumb comic book, or one of the baying reactionary position papers from the America Firsters or the Sons of the Patriots. When it came to the printed word, Flagg was an equal opportunity reader. End quote. And then a bit later in the same chapter, quote, He was known, well known along the highways in hiding that are traveled by the poor and the mad, by the professional revolutionaries, and by those who have been taught to hate so well that their hate shows on their faces like hair lips, and they are unwanted except by others like them, who welcomed them to cheap rooms with slogans and posters on the wall, to basements where lengths of sawed-off pipe are held in padded vices while they are stuffed with high explosives, to back rooms where lunatic plans are laid, to kill a cabinet member, to kidnap the child of a visiting dignitary, or to break into a boardroom meeting of standard oil with grenades and machine guns and murder in the name of the people. He was known there, and even the maddest of them could only gaze upon his dark and grinning face at an oblique angle. The women he took to bed with him, even if they reduced intercourse to something as casual as getting a snack from the refrigerator, accepted him with a stiffening of the body, a turning away of countenance. They took him the way they might take a ram with golden eyes or a black dog. And when it was done, they were cold. So cold it seemed impossible they could ever be warm again. When he walked into a meeting, the hysterical babble ceased. The backbiting, recriminations, accusations, the ideological rhetoric. For a moment, there would be dead silence, and they would start to turn to him, and then turn away as if he had come to them with some old and terrible engine of destruction cradled in his arms. Something a thousand times worse than the plastic explosive made in the basement labs of renegade chemistry students or the black market arms obtained from some greedy army post-supply sergeant. It seemed that he had come to them with a device gone rusty with blood and packed for centuries in the cosmoline of screams, but now ready again, carried to their meeting like some infernal gift, a birthday cake with nitroglycerin candles. And when the talk began again, it would be rational and disciplined, as rational and disciplined as madmen can make it, and things would be agreed upon. End quote. In notes while writing the miniseries, King stated that Flagg was deep in it in Vietnam, quite probably on the Viet Cong side and the author even overtly references Flagg's inspiration in the prose, making Flagg a member of the SLA when he writes, quote, For a while in the early 70s, he had been acquainted with a man named Donald DeFries and had suggested that DeFries take the name SinQ. He had helped lay plans that resulted in the kidnapping of an heiress, and it had been he who suggested that the heiress be made crazy instead of simply ransomed. End quote. Flagg is a man without race, 
without a face, but with a purpose as clear and defined as the trash can man's. Flag is evil. As written, it's just very easy to see Flag as Satan come to the earth. The devil has many names and many faces, and with his penchant for evil, it's easy to think one of those could be Randall Flagg. In the miniseries, written by King himself, Flagg even quotes the Rolling Stones' sympathy for the devil with, quote, Pleased to meet you. Hope you guessed my name. End quote. But in this novel, it's made clear he's not Satan, but a servant of the Dark Lord. Flagg is called the Devil's Imp, and that, quote, he and Satan know of each other and have kept their counsels together of old, end quote. That said, Flag is a mystery, even to himself. When we meet Flag, he's in the midst of the transformation, from that quote I put at the beginning of this podcast. But this transformation is not without some cost. Flag has little memory of his own history. This may be an overly convenient trick by King, as he writes from a strong character-driven third-person perspective. But while Flag may be ageless, he's not able to remember his exploits. Was he a man born on Earth and then possessed by the devil? Or was he a demon who's walked the earth for hundreds of years? That's hard to say based on the stand, but it's clear that he's more demon than human, both from the supernatural powers he exhibits as well as from his goals. King said he was partially inspired for Flag by the biblical demon's legion. One character describes Flag as, quote, He looks like anybody you see on the street, but when he grins, birds fall dead off telephone lines. When he looks at you a certain way, your prostate goes bad and your urine burns. The grass yellows up and dies where he spits. He's always outside. He came out of time. He doesn't know himself. End quote. His motives are actually fairly undefined, perhaps because King believes evil needs no justification for bad acts. Yet, I'm not sure what Flagg's end goal is. In the short term, Flagg wants power. He wants to rule over the plague survivors, first in America and eventually elsewhere. Also, he wants to birth a demonic heir to his throne. Yet beyond that, what is Flag's goal? Is power the goal, or is it souls? Is Flag working for himself, or is he in fact merely an agent on Earth acting for the devil in a larger scheme? It's never defined, but that may be for the best. Whatever scares the reader most about the devil can be projected onto the faceless form of Randall Flag. One character, Mother Abigail, says of Flag, quote, I know what he's about, but not who he is. He's the purest evil left in the world. The rest of the bad is little evil, shoplifters and sex fiends and the people who like to use their fists, but he'll call them. He started already. He's getting them together a lot faster than we are. Before he's ready to make his move, I guess he'll have a lot more. Not just the evil ones that are like him, but the weak ones, the lonely ones, and the ones that have left God out of their hearts. End quote. While we may not know the what or the how, King does tell us the why, as in, why does Flag ascend to the aftermath of the plague? King writes one character saying, quote, The Bible. It don't say what happened to Noah and his family after the flood went down, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was some awful tussle for the souls of those few people, for their souls, their bodies, their way of thinking. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's what was on for us. End quote. Flag is very likely not even the character's real name, but it is how we're first introduced to this force of evil. He has many names in the novel. He's often called the Dark Man, or the Walkin' Dude, or sometimes the Boogeyman. And as an aside, so he's the one who was in that closet in Night Shift. Though while we are introduced first to this man as Flag, in the extended edition, there's an additional chapter where the Dark Man meets another character to get some forged papers in a car. This new character knows the Dark Man as Richard Fry, setting up a pattern of the Dark Man using names with the initials R and F. 
These papers are in the name of Randall Flagg, so it may be a name the imp chose for himself this time, a name chosen by the forager, or something else entirely. It's an odd chapter that raises more questions than it answers, such as who's checking Flagg's ID after the government has fallen? It probably should have been left cut from even the longer version. But by any name, Flagg is a character with glorious purpose. In the ruins of America, he will establish a new society. For this he needs people, and the first he recruits is Lloyd Henry, coming to the man as Lloyd is starving in the jail cell. Flagg makes Lloyd a devil's deal. The prisoner will be released in exchange for servitude. And Lloyd agrees, not just out of desperation, he's flattered that he's been chosen to be this dark being's right-hand man. King writes, quote, Lloyd turned and looked into that grinning face with something more than gratitude. He looked at Flagg with something like love, end quote. While only 0.6% of Americans are left alive, that's still about 1.2 million people. Lloyd, as Flagg's lieutenant, is the only one we see granted a personal visit for recruitment. For all the others, including the trash can man, Flagg recruits a different way, in dreams. And thus we have our next mystical element of the stand, psychic powers. All of the survivors of the plague have dreams which tell them where to go and what to do to help them survive. King never makes it completely clear if the survivors have some low-level psychic power, which I think they might, I'll get into that a little later. Or the other option, if Flag is like Freddy Krueger and able to appear to people in their dreams. But it's through dreams and nightmares that the survivors find their destinations. Now normally, I would call out any story that hinges on characters gaining motivations from their dreams. That type of vision is too convenient, and indeed it is here. King established a society that was scattered, and there was no TV, no radio, so how does everyone come together? I think in time it would have happened eventually. Notes would be left, markers laid, and small communities would form. But King wanted something bigger and faster, with two real destinations, the polar opposites, not a scattered number of fiefdoms. The answer he chose was dreams. And yes, it is a convenient way to move characters around, possibly overly convenient. But in The Stand, a tale where God plays a direct and literal hand, I'm going to be a bit more forgiving. It was common in the Bible for important people to have visions and to be guided by God. Plus, in a story that deals with magic and psychics, I can go with that either two strong psychics were broadcasting, or every survivor had some level of psychic power that they were receiving. In short, to me the dreams feel like a natural growth of The Stand, not just a convenient plot device. So it's through these dreams that Flag appears and tells people to come to him in Las Vegas and Los Angeles and the West Coast. To some, Flag appears in the dream as a frightening presence, trying to intimidate or coerce their supplication. To others, though, Flag appears as he did to Lloyd, sweet-talking his target. He appears in a more threatening manner to Franny, a twisted coat hanger in his hands. That message is clear. He wants to kill Fran's unborn baby. Flag actually never does anything to the child, but it does set the stage that Fran's baby is not safe in this new world. Also in one of these dreams, Flag again appears much like Satan, coming to Nick and saying he can cure the young man, making him able to hear and talk. But, quote, this creature, whatever it was, performed no free miracles, end quote. In exchange for these gifts, Flag demanded that Nick worshipped him. The word Nick said, having a voice in that dream, was no. Of course, not everyone said no, and it wasn't just the evil and the insane who were drawn to Flagg's camp. According to one character, 
It's also the scientists and the technicians who go to Vegas because, quote, the tech people like to work in an atmosphere of tight discipline and linear goals, for the most part. They like it when the trains run on time. What we've got here in Boulder right now is mass confusion, everyone bopping along and doing his own thing, and we've got to do something about what my students would have called getting our shit together. But that other fellow, I bet he's got the trains running on time and all his ducks in a row. And techies are just as human as the rest of us. They'll go to where they're wanted the most. I have a suspicion that our adversary wants as many as he can get. Fuck the farmers. He'd just as soon have a few men who can dust off those Idaho missile silos and get them operational again. Ditto tanks and helicopters and maybe a B-52 bomber or two just for chuckles. End quote. So, I suppose I'd find myself in Las Vegas, not because I'm evil, but because I could certainly get some computers and podcasts going. But it's this theme that drove King in the stand. He didn't just want to wipe out society, but to discuss the dangers of technology. The evil people are going to Sin City, yes, but more than a city that caters to vices, it's a city of neon lights. Flag is working to reestablish order by bringing back the power online, and then working to bring back the weapons as well. Flag isn't building a city of depravity, but one of order. On the surface, it doesn't look bad at all. But punishments are swift and severe. Flag's new society is equated to Hitler's Germany. It was orderly, but deadly to those within and outside. To some, including Larry, Flag is the only dream they have, and Vegas their only beacon. But most people have two dreams. Yes, Flag is calling them to Sin City, but in the other dream, they see a 106-year-old black woman named Abigail Fremantle or as she calls herself, Mother Abigail. If Flag is set up to be the Black King, Mother Abigail is the White Queen. Though she's not a supernatural creature, she is quite human, but as he does with most of the main characters, King explores Mother Abigail's backstory through her own memories, growing up in the shadow of slavery and eventually outliving several husbands and her own children. Yet Mother Abigail is certainly psychic. Borrowing from his previous novel, King writes that Mother Abigail has God's gift of prophecy, and that her grandmother used to call it, quote, the shining lamp of God, sometimes just the shine, end quote. Indeed, an old African-American psychic character, Mother Abigail is just an older, gender-flipped version of the Shining's Dick Halloran. Much like Dick would remotely guide Danny Torrance to safety, Mother Abigail will call all the good people to come to her farm in Hemingford Home, Nebraska, the farm where the old woman has lived her entire life. Also, much like Dick, Mother Abigail is another instance of the trope of the magical black character in fiction. In truth, it seems African Americans are underrepresented in the stand. Mother Abigail is not the only survivor, but the rest of the main cast is made up of white people and then only males. So while Mother Abigail may be an instance of a storytelling cliché, I like that King has included people of color in this story. I also enjoyed reading the character's backstory of dealing with racism, which could be tricky for a white man to write, but I think King handles it well. The stories of growing up on the farm, playing music in front of the white audience, it really moved me. It might have slowed down the book for some readers, but I greatly enjoyed this look back on this character's 106-year life. But if Flags Vegas is the home of technology, Mother Abigail's farm is the exact opposite. The old woman doesn't even have indoor plumbing, resisting her grandchildren's insistence that she have an indoor toilet. While Flag's people set about with catered food, we witness Mother Abigail slaughter and clean her own chickens and pigs. More than just a woman of the earth, Mother Abigail is a woman of God. Strongly religious, Mother Abigail's gift of the shining does indeed make her a biblical prophet in the same vein as Moses, Abraham, and Miriam. 
She seems to have a direct line to God and knowledge of what will come. Nick will doubt Mother Abigail speaks to God, preferring Dick Halloran's thought that maybe it's just psychic power. However, it becomes clear throughout this novel that indeed, God himself is working through this old woman. She's the only survivor on her farm, but she knows that others will be coming to her, and she prepares to welcome them despite her old age and arthritis. And it's here to Hemingford Home that Nick and Stuart called. And Hemingford Home, I might add, is the same town that King wrote about in his night shift short story, The Last Rung on the Ladder, and King would later say it's just down the highway from Gatlin, Nebraska, home of the children of the corn. And here is the second half of book one, as well as the first half of book two, and the portion that reminds me most of The Lord of the Rings, a great perilous journey across a great land. As Frodo and Sam had to journey through many dangers to Mordor, we watch our heroes face many trials as they try to reach Nebraska. And it's in this section that King's diamond-shaped storytelling starts to get wider. Each of our four main characters pick up one important secondary character on their journey. Fran's secondary character is Harold Lauder. This pairing is unique in many ways. Like Fran, Harold is from Algonquit, Maine, and he was the 16-year-old brother of Fran's best friend Amy. Survivors of the plague were rare, and few to no other survivors actually knew each other before Captain Tripp spread, but Harold and Fran knew each other fairly well. Not that they were close. Fran couldn't stand Harold, and with good reason. When we meet Harold at the start of the novel, he's tremendously gross and dirty. He was a large figure, both tall and obese, constantly eating candy bars. Payday in the original and revised, Milky Way in that 1980 paperback. He rarely showered, leaving him with greasy hair, zits, and underwear stiff from the remnants of his masturbatory habits. Despite his social ineptness, or perhaps because of it, Harold was also an insufferable know-it-all. His goal at 16 was to be a writer, and he would often put people off with his smarty-pants attitude. King, reinforcing my idea that all survivors are slightly psychic, says Fran thought Harold's every thought was coated with slime, quote, as if she sensed by low-grade telepathy, end quote. He ogled Fran's body and made her uncomfortable. Yet, being a few years older, Fran felt responsible to look out for Harold in this new society. But Harold, being the intellectual braggart that he is, thinks he's the one taking care of Fran and holds some romantic interests as well. And it truly is a testament to Fran's dislike for the boy that she thinks he very well may be the last male on Earth and she can still barely tolerate him. Now, as I've described Harold, it may seem obvious that he would join Flag's ranks while Fran would go to Nebraska. But Harold's not that cut and dry of a character. King has stated that Harold is loosely based on the worst parts of himself as a teenager, a large child with aspirations of being a novelist who is also a bit of a social outcast. Obviously, Harold is fictionalized as far more gross than any account I've ever read of King, but that King would make even a version of himself so obviously a villain is a bit counterintuitive. Most authors tend to overly glorify their fictional personas, not demonize them, but King said in an interview, quote, to a large extent, Harold Lauder is based on me. With any character that a writer creates, you try to look at people and get a feel for them and understand the way they think. But Harold is a terrible loner, and he is somebody who feels totally rejected by everybody around him, and he feels fat and ugly and unpleasant most of the time. End quote. That said, King was not as nasty as Harold. The author also said, quote, Sometimes I used to feel rejected and unpleasant. I can remember that from high school. And of course, Harold is sort of a frustrated writer. But on the whole, if there was a Harold aspect to my own character, it was fairly small because most of the time I felt much sunnier. I never felt resentful, and I certainly never felt that the people around me didn't appreciate my great and blazing talent, 
because there were times when I thought that if I had a great and blazing talent, it was probably for picking my nose in study hall, end quote. But there's much more to Harold than first appears in the novel, and the complexity is why he becomes my second favorite character, only behind Larry. Throughout this book, Harold has both a physical and mental transformation. Finally forced to leave the confines of his house and explore the world, Harold starts to lose weight and clean himself up. More, his feelings of responsibility for Fran are actually noble and genuine. Yeah, Harold lusts after the college girl. Looky, 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 here comes Nookie and all that. But that's not his only reason for looking out for her. In his mind, he loves the girl, with all the good and bad that entails. Like Larry, throughout the course of the novel, Harold becomes a character that could really go either way. But unlike Larry, who I always knew was a good guy, with Harold I saw a bad guy. Fran was right. We'll learn in passages written in Harold's point of view that most of his thoughts are covered in slime. But yet, I still actually believed there was a possibility of redemption. Plus, it's Harold's book smarts that let him know there is a plague center in Vermont, and if any scientists were alive, they'd likely be there. As such, Harold and Fran take off for Stovington, Vermont, leaving large markers for any other survivors to follow. Looking at King connections, let's not forget that Stovington is where The Shining's patriarch Jack Torrance used to teach, and, of course, it's where Stu Redmond was held for study. But while Harold and Fran head south, Stu has escaped the building to head north to New Hampshire, where he meets another important character, Glenn Bateman. As the story progresses, Glenn is a character who becomes vitally important. His role is one I'd actually consider to be a main character in terms of plot. But as introduced and as written in the novel, he stays a secondary character. King never explores Glenn's backstory the way he does many other characters. Instead, Glenn serves as King's mouthpiece. A retired sociology professor, Glenn is the know-it-all that Harold pretends to be. The difference between the two is Glenn is almost always right. Throughout the story, the sociologist correctly predicts the course of society in the wake of America's death. Once the flu is out of the story, it's Glenn who helps predict the bad things to come from the possibilities of totalitarian regimes to the religious fervor that surrounds Mother Abigail. On page 408, 30% into the book, Bateman hypothesizes the entire remainder of the book, that two societies will spring up and their focus would be turning on power. He also predicted nuclear wars from bombs left around. Bateman even says he will be forced to go see the Dark Man and that will be the death of him. Everything he predicts comes true in one fashion or another. Smart and with a quick sardonic wit, Glenn is an enjoyable character on the page, and it's a bit disappointing that a character who would become pivotal in the story's climax isn't given further exploration. But while Stu is seeking out other people, Glenn is more than happy to remain where he is in New Hampshire, along with Kojak, one of the few dogs immune to Captain Trips. It's only after Stu meets Fran and Harold that Glenn agrees to join their troop and seek out society, though sadly it means they must leave Kojak behind as they're taking motorcycles. Thus their trek begins, and picking up many less important characters along the way, it's that foursome that travels west to Mother Abigail. And this meeting with Stu brings about a new aspect of Harold's character. He's possessive and jealous over Fran. Up until Stu and Glenn, Harold and Fran hadn't met anyone else. But now Harold sees in Stu what I do. He's a leading man and a romantic type. Harold is instantly pissy and worried that Stu will make a move on Fran, which, of course, he eventually does. So while their group, growing as they travel, are united in purpose to get to Mother Abigail, Harold is in his own world of torment, wanting revenge on Stu for stealing his girl. It's a nice setup that King lets dangle for maximum suspense, and it eventually pays off. But in a novel this long, of course, it's going to be stretched razor thin before that happens. 
Now, our third main character, Nick, being in Arkansas, has a much shorter journey, but he also picks up an important secondary character. M-O-O-N? That spells Tom Cullen, an intellectually disabled man in his late 20s. I think that Tom is somewhat based on Lenny from Of Mice and Men. He certainly embodies the trope of the large, strong, dim-witted man, yet Tom's strength is never a hindrance or a danger. At one point, he calls himself God's Tom, and that makes very clear this character is on the side of good. Tom's retardation is written in such a way that he's just a large child. He enjoys playing with young kids, and in the aftermath of the plague, he has the childlike simplicity that he won't even break into stores because stealing is wrong. When Nick eventually breaks that taboo, all Tom wants is to steal some toy cars to play with. But another Mice and Men parallel is that King pairs Cullen with Nick, having the small, wiry guy with the big man. Yet Nick's trials are never-ending on this journey, as, of course, Tom can't read and Nick can't talk. Yet Nick is, as I said, a nice guy, and Tom is overly trusting. So the two begin a journey, following the black woman Nick sees in his dreams, without ever knowing each other's names. Honestly, the way King writes Tom is overly simplistic. Less than learning disabled, Tom is just written like an oversized preschooler. More, much like the trope of the magical black person, there's the trope of the magical handicapped person, and King indulges in that here. The God's Tom bit comes when Tom goes into trances and he seems all-knowing as Mother Abigail herself. And God help us when I get to my Books and Nachos review of Dreamcatcher for this trope at its most heinous. Plus, Tom really overuses his catchphrase, M-O-O-N, that spells whatever they're talking about at that moment. Yet the sweet simplicity in Tom makes him hard to hate. Plus, he's paired with Nick, a character I enjoy reading. I think Nick's affection for the big lug is transferred to me as I go along with this. Tom will be given an important role to play, but certainly a supporting one. It's on the road that Nick and Tom encounter a more important character, a farmer named Ralph Brentner. Another good old boy, Ralph picks up Nick and Tom in his truck and together they begin the caravan to Mother Abigail's. Ralph is a very underserved character in the novel. He's omnipresent, and his common-sense attitudes often save the day for the survivors, but he's a completely unexplored character, and so when he becomes important in Book 3, it's rather shocking. But yet, leave it to my favorite character, Larry, to have the most interesting companions on his journey. Being in Manhattan, it is logical that Larry isn't the only survivor. But this is New York, and most of the survivors are to be feared, especially New York in the late 70s. Larry wanders to Central Park in a haze, walking through stopped traffic, corpses, and the not-so-far-off sounds of gunshots. But it's here that Larry meets Rita Blakemore, a wealthy, middle-aged woman who finds her wealth is suddenly of no use in the new status quo. The older woman finds it hard to handle all the death around her and keeps herself doped up on a good number of prescription pills, and she clings to Larry for help. Larry suggests they travel up to Maine, and Rita agrees. Larry initially sees Rita as a quick lay and perhaps a companion in the madness, but by this point, keep in mind, Larry ain't no nice guy, so the more needy Rita becomes, the more he berates her and yells at her. Of course, the rocker feels guilty about it, but it's guilt born of responsibility rather than born of a true desire to help a fellow human being. And it's alone, trying to leave New York through the Lincoln Tunnel, that King delivers his best single passage in the stand. Larry's rising dread as he crawls through the darkness is palpable. This segment stands alone as well as anything in Night Shift, and it's twice as thrilling as Night Shift's best tale of terror. If you read no other part of The Stand, read this chapter.
It's 35 in the uncut version, 27 in the original. But try as much as his selfish heart can, Larry can't help Rita enough, and at the end of book one, on the 4th of July, Larry finds Rita dead of an overdose in the tent they'd shared the night before. This is Larry's cross to bear, that after the death of his mother, he held himself responsible for the death of Rita. Worse than being responsible, Larry actually felt relieved that the woman had died, so he didn't have to have the burden of the useless woman any longer. So it's alone that Larry heads up the coast towards Maine to find a place to wait out the disaster. Rita dies on July 4th, the same day that Fran meets Stu in New Hampshire, and it's there that book one ends. I can understand why King would be tempted to end the first installment on July 4th. Once again, I reiterate how this is an American fantasy, and July 4th is a uniquely American holiday. More, it's Independence Day, and not since the days before British colonization has America been so independent as what King describes. The survivors of Captain Trips have no taxes to pay, no police to abide. They are truly free, with all the positives and negatives that lack of establishment entails. But while this marking of the date makes sense from that perspective, in terms of the book, the ending seems really arbitrary. Were the stand broken into three novels and sold as such as Lord of the Rings was, this wouldn't be an ending, nor even have a hook to continue. In my mind, the stand really has four acts. The first is the downfall with America, with Captain Trips. The second is the survivors and their journey to the new colonies. The third is the establishment of that new society. And the fourth is The Stand. If we wanted to make it three acts, the first two parts could be combined. But I really think book one should have ended with either the downfall of society, or better, the first characters arriving at Mother Abigail's. Yet, in both editions, book one is almost exactly one-third of the novel. And to judge it alone, if I were just reviewing book one, I have to say it's about perfect. It has the right number of characters that were properly developed. Yes, many of them are easily identifiable types, such as Stu, the strong Texan, Harold the nerd, Fran the college girl, and Larry the rocker. Yet King's writing elevates them beyond the cardboard characters they could be through showing us each character's history. But none of this is done. We've not yet met all the players, and the journey is only halfway done. To drive this point home, when Book 2 begins, entitled On the Border, Larry is still traveling up to Maine. All the other characters are still headed to Nebraska. But in book two, Larry meets two new companions, a former school teacher named Nadine Cross and a feral child she had found and cared for that she called Joe. Now I've listed several characters as ones I've enjoyed. Even Stu is a detailed and individual character, though he's frustratingly one-dimensional. But Nadine, of all the characters in this novel, I dislike King's writing of this woman the most. See, Despite pairing with Larry, my favorite character, Nadine is destined to join Flag in Vegas. She is so aligned to evil, she is one of the few characters who never even dreams of Mother Abigail, only of Flag. See, Nadine's fate is to be the mother of Flag's heir, and for this purpose she's remained a virgin her entire life. Now first, this plot of Devil Spawn was a bit overdone by the time The Stand was published in 1978. The entire idea of Satan fathering the Antichrist is taken straight from Rosemary's Baby, a book published more than a decade before The Stand. Add to that The Omen, which admittedly was released while King was already writing The Stand, and The Exorcist, released much earlier. But in the 70s, the idea of devil children was frankly overdone. Which isn't to say I don't like the concept. First, The Stand deals with large biblical themes. And the Antichrist is a concept that dates back to the New Testament. Plus, 
Flagg's mission is somewhat undefined. The idea that he must bring forth an even more evil progeny is an idea I can really be on board with. The problem, and it's a rare one for King, is how the story's told. I previously said that Flagg's character raised some questions that were never really answered, and that's okay. He's a shape-shifting demon. But the inclusion of Nadine as his baby mama raises far more important questions that King has no answer to. For example, Nadine has always had a sense that she was destined for something, but it's never made clear how much she knows or why she was chosen. Larry, being Larry, tries to sleep with Nadine and the teacher wants to, but she somehow knows that her virginity is important to Flag. King writes, quote, If she let Larry have her, or if she let any man have her, the dark enchantment would end. End quote. When Nadine eventually reaches Flag, she asks, Who promised me to you? Why me? And Flag has no answers. And these questions are important if I'm to feel at all invested in Nadine's character. I can forgive a biblical story where much of the motivation comes from characters seeing it in a dream, but that Nadine is here tormenting Larry with her forbidden sexuality is a plot convenience I cannot condone. We needed something to make Nadine the target. A Satanist mother? An unforgivable sin as a child? A penchant for playing with dark magics? Slut-shaming a frenemy? Something had to be there to explain Nadine's loyalty to Flag. There isn't. Nadine is a character simply introduced to make other things happen, and it's drawn out too long with no real payoff. I like the concept of Flag wanting a bride, but I dislike that long before the superflu, long before Flag's transmutation into his current magical being, Nadine knew something like this was coming, and she was perfectly okay with it. It's not right because she appears to be a good person. She's a school teacher who loves children, that's why she picked up Joe. And yet, she's just going to turn into a one-dimensional evil bride of flag. Worse than being a character with virtually no motivation for very extreme actions, Nadine is a wasted opportunity. She could have been so many things in this plot and escalated the action in so many ways. But like Fran, all of this is wasted to turn her into another broodmare. Not much better is Nadine's ward, the boy she calls Joe. I like to think that in King's mind, there was some version of the novel where Joe became an important character. On the surface, he's incredibly captivating, and his backstory is not only engaging, but tragic. Joe's real name is Leo Rockway. He's a 10-year-old boy that Nadine found alone in his parents' home. How long he'd been alone is unknown, but long enough to go feral. He had been bitten and was ill, and Nadine nursed him back to health. But the boy remained savage and would only wear underpants and communicate in primitive grunting sounds. He carries around a butcher's knife the way Linus and Peanuts carries a security blanket. When we first meet Joe, he's savage and stalking Larry. Nadine is following the musician, but keeping herself and Joe out of sight, not sure if Larry would be friendly or dangerous, but she knew she and the boy needed help to survive. But Joe's made up his mind and tries to slit Larry's throat, stopped only by Larry's fast reflexes and Nadine threatening to leave the boy behind. It's in this standoff that Larry meets Nadine. Now, Joe may not impact the overall plot, but he is key to Larry's redemptive arc. When book two starts, Larry has started to embrace his self-centered nature. His relief at Rita's death was Larry's first time thinking, it's okay to not be a nice guy. The world had gotten crueler, and he was getting harder in response. This is very clear when Larry meets Nadine and Joe. Larry is more than willing to let Nadine accompany him. She's attractive and can probably watch out for herself. But he demands they leave the boy behind. 
This is Larry's darkest moment, willing to completely abandon a very young child to the wild for the sake of self-preservation. And again, like so many things with Larry, I get his position. The boy did try to slit his throat. Abandoning him to the elements may not be an ideal choice, or an easy choice for that matter, but I know I wouldn't want to sleep in the tent next to a boy who was acting like Michael Myers with a butcher knife. Nadine refuses. She equates leaving Joe behind to murdering the boy, and that's an act she refuses to do. So, begrudgingly, Larry agrees to keep Joe around, though he confiscates the boy's knife. It's through Joe, however, that Larry starts to find redemption. One night while camping, Larry begins to play music on his guitar. Any song will do except Baby Can You Dig Your Man and Joe is mesmerized by the music. It's not long before Larry's teaching the 10-year-old psychopath to play guitar. It doesn't take much teaching as Joe can seem to replicate by ear any song Larry plays, but this is where the man and the boy start to bond, and it's through that bond that both Joe and Larry regain their humanity. It's also in witnessing this bond that Nadine starts to fall for Larry, though she cannot allow herself to be unfaithful to her intended demonic future husband. Yet, while Joe is a useful plot device for Larry, Joe himself seems like some wasted opportunity. Later, we'll discover that Joe is clearly psychic. He can intuit things from other people and slightly read their thoughts. If Mother Abigail is to the stand what Dick Halloran is to The Shining, it seems to me that Joe has a bit in common with young psychic Danny Torrance, who also retreated emotionally after some abuse. Yet, Joe's psychic powers are an abandoned plot thread as well. Joe's ability to read people does give Larry a bit of insight, but it certainly doesn't change the course of the story at all. It's really a needless instance of psychic powers. Now, if King is trying to say, as I read it, that all survivors have a little bit of the shining in them, perhaps even that psychic ability is linked to their immunity from Captain Trips, then Joe certainly helps drive that home. Yet with Flag's magical powers, Mother Abigail's communes with the Lord, and Joe the psychic child, the story's really becoming untethered from any sort of reality. All of King's previous novels took a normal world and inserted a single supernatural element. A single girl with powers. Vampires. Ghosts. Now we're in a world that seems to have no rules, and honestly, if characters suddenly developed the power to fly or if zombies rose from the grave, I wouldn't blink. King alludes to this being the case in the extended edition. He writes, quote, How many times in the past few days he had been here had Larry seen someone just stop dead on the street, looking blankly at nothing for a moment, and then go on? Things had changed. The whole range of human perception seemed to have stepped up a notch. It was scary as hell. End quote. I really don't have a problem with this conceptually. If the flu has indeed unleashed some level of human ability, then that would be completely acceptable but I think it should have a purpose in this story. Not only do these psychic powers not change the course of the plot, I can't even chalk this up to world building because it's so underdeveloped. I have come upon a theory, though. In my third reading, I started to wonder if Joe wanted to kill Larry because his psychic power told him what Larry had been saying all along. He was no nice guy. Having embraced his dark half after the death of Rita, Larry was ready to abandon Joe as well. Perhaps Joe's attacks were actually a form of self-defense, realizing that aligning with this bad guy would put he and Nadine in danger. Yet, Joe starts to warm to Larry as Larry becomes a nicer guy. Eventually, when they reach Boulder, Joe would be extraordinarily close to Larry. Is it that Joe and Larry bond and that helps Larry change? Or is it that Larry changes and, as such, this psychic boy now knows to trust him? I kind of like that latter idea, though it's never fully said. King's a master of subtext in the alternate reading. 
I really do think that's what he's putting here. It's also as Larry becomes nice to Joe that he starts to dream of Mother Abigail. Prior to this, he'd only been dreaming of Flag, but following the path to Nebraska left by Harold. Now, Mother Abigail herself visits Larry in his sleep to beckon him to join her side. And as for Joe, like I said, I have to think King had a greater purpose in mind when he introduced the child. But by the time we reach the end of the novel, Joe's become a forgotten footnote. But with the addition of Nadine and Joe, most all main and secondary characters have been introduced. But the group are still on the road continuing their trek. And it's a journey I'll discuss next time in part four of our trek through Stephen King's The Stand. That will be posted tomorrow at booksandnachos.com. And while you wait for that, don't forget, you can hear my thoughts on the ABC miniseries of The Stand at nowplayingpodcast.com. There I'm joined by Stuart and Jacob as we're reviewing all of King's films alongside my book reviews here. So I'll be back tomorrow, and in the meantime, M-O-O-N, that spells remember to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Whoop! Whoop!